0: Father, you have been so faithful to us, not only this year, but every year, and as we look over our past, I trust that it is not with anger, but with joy, knowing that the Lord has led us. And Father, I pray that as we think of the future, it will not be with anxiety, but with faith, (coughs) and that nothing will prevent us from resting in you in the present. Recognizing that it's only in the present that we can truly experience God in all of His glory and His faithfulness, the joy and the (laughs) peace and the comfort and everything that comes from you. Father, I thank you for this special time of the year in which we commemorate the first advent, the coming of Jesus Christ to live and to die for us. Oh, Father, even though we don't understand the mysteries of the Incarnation, we're so grateful that it is a reality, and that Christ became to us a living Savior. And I pray that throughout this Christmas time of the year, we will focus on the living Savior, on Christ as our King, and as the one who leads us now and forevermore. Father, I pray that you will bless us in our study this morning. I pray that you will be with this Sunday School this morning in every class, every venue, and that you will be glorified in all that is said and all that is done in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will turn to the 34th chapter of Exodus, 34th chapter of Exodus, I'd like to read beginning at verse 18. Exodus 34, 18. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread. As I commanded you, At the appointed time in the month Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. First offspring of every womb belongs to me, and all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep. And you shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring of a donkey. If you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons, and none shall appear before me empty-handed." You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. And you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will drive out nations before you, and enlarge your borders, and no man shall covet your land. When you go up three times a year to appear before the lord your god you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the passover to be left over until the morning you shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the lord your god you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk we'll stop there for a moment god had spent a great deal of time and effort instructing Israel as to how Israel was not to worship. Now he is focusing on how they were to worship. The worship of God for them as well as for us is not, was not to be dull and boring, but was to be full of joy. And I don't mean, you know, frothy joy, but true deep joy, that joy that goes down to the depth of the soul. It gives that security, that sense of well being, that sense of ultimate blessing in the presence of God. And this, of course, was to be expressed in their festivals of worship. And he talks about them in this passage. First of all, and, and we ended with this last week, he reminded them of the Passover. This, of course, was, I mean, they are just coming up to the uh, first anniversary of the Passover uh, sometime in the near future as we look at this particular passage, and to the week-long period of uh, the festival of unleavened bread, which preceded the Passover itself. And they were to celebrate it, He, he told them he were to celebrate it in the same month, in fact on the same day, that it originally took place. So it was to be an annual thing that they were to remember. And, of course, we know the significance of it because it would be then uh, thousands, 1,500, 1,400 years later, whatever the time frame is, that uh, Jesus Christ himself would become the Passover Lamb and would die at the Passover season. And so this is a very, very important feast and festival for them to remember. Uh, It was a time of sadness, but it was also a, a time of joy because of the deliverance which God gave to Israel, which was symbolic of the ultimate deliverance, of course, that all people would experience who would come to faith in Christ. This, of course, we read in this passage, was to include the dedication of the firstborn. Because, as you remember, as the death angel swept over Egypt, the firstborn in all of those houses where the blood was not put on the lentils and on the doorposts, the firstborn died, but where the blood was, was placed there, The firstborn would live, and so the firstborn would would be dedicated to the Lord, whatever that might mean. In some cases, they would actually uh, participate in in some form of service. In others, uh, they would simply be presented, and God would give them back. I'm talking about people, of course. The animals would be sacrificed. Secondly, in this passage, we discover that he reminded them of the fourth commandment, and that is the keeping of the Sabbath. And the keeping of the Sabbath was not to be a drag either. It was to be a time of joy and celebration. You know, we have this tendency because it says thou shalt not and thou shalt not uh, several times in the Decalogue, that the whole Sabbath thing, we, we view it often negatively also. And, and think of the Lord's Day or, or the Sabbath as, you know, just a draggy time that they had to sit around their tent and not do anything. And, and to realize that was not the way God intended it. It was, it was to be a time of, of celebration, of joy, of worship, of communing with God. And I think one of our problems today, and certainly was the problem that, faced, that most of Israel faced, is that we don't really know how to commune with God. You know, we haven't really learned what it means to be quiet, be still, and know the Lord our God, and to commune with Him, and, and to have fellowship with Him, and uh, not to just sit down on, on a Sunday, you know, and, and fold their hands and do nothing and be bored, <laughs> because we, we don't know how to, to commune with God, and, and all that that might mean, of course, in prayer, in, in song, in celebration, in family time together, wh- whatever was the practice that was involved. Thirdly, uh, God reminded them of the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Firstfruits, that was to be held Around the end of May, uh, the feast of the Passover, the unleavened bread, was to be held around the end of March, first part of April, depending, but around that particular time period. Uh, later on, this particular feast, the Feast of First Fruits, will be known as Pentecost because it would take place 50 days after Passover time. And of course, we know how all of that fits into the New Testament too because it would be 50 days. Uh, after the uh, time of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, lamb Jesus Christ that the Spirit of God would come upon the, per- on the church in the, in the event called Pentecost. The Feast of Ingathering was also to be a time when they were to celebrate God. Later on this we know as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles and it was to be held around the first of October. Uh, really not very far from the time of Yom Kippur. Finally, God reminded them that at the times of these three feasts, these three festivals, these three times of of joyous expression of the people to God, the adult males were to appear before God at the worship center, which, of course, in this case was to be the soon-to-be-completed tabernacle, and later on, of course, the temple. They were to appear before, and the scripture says, Adon Yahweh Elohim of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, God of all Israel. Three times a year, God required them to put out the time and put out the effort to renew their commitment and to renew their accountability before God and the people. And that's really not any too often, is it? It's easy for us to forget our commitments and and to move away from accountability if we don't keep renewing it. And God, of course, knew all of these things. God is the supreme counselor, the wonderful counselor, and therefore he knows what his people need. And, And so he made this a requirement for the Israelite males. Now, what's interesting is, that God promised that if they faithfully carry out these celebrations of worship. Now, we know from later passages, particularly in the Minor Prophets, where God will say, I hate your festivals and I hate your sacrifices, because their hearts had grown cold and were turned away from the Lord. But what is implied here in, in this passage, that if they faithfully keep these celebrations of worship with their hearts turned towards the Lord, that He would not only give them the promised land, but he would enable them to keep it. And collectively and individually, he would protect their homesteads while they were away doing these sacrificial uh, ceremonial times at the tabernacle or at the temple. If you go and you serve the Lord your God, faithfully I will see to it, he says, that your land is untouched that your crops will grow as they properly should grow, that everything would be cared for as if you were there, or even better, if you will just do what I say. No need to be worried. Oh, if I go off and do this, my crop will over-ripen, or my you or know, I can't be there to protect it against marauders. God says, I'll do that. I'll do that. That kind of relates back to that little um, saying I read a few minutes ago. Uh, we, we often are anxious about the future, aren't we? We're often anxious about the future we fail to realize that if we're living with God as we ought to in the present, we've got nothing to worry about about the future. He will take care of it. Amen. He will protect our crops, our fields, our holdings, whatever it is. He will do that. If we live in that, in that present uh, fellowship with Him in trust and faith, He takes care of the future. And that's not just a, a pious saying. It's a reality. I mean, God promises it here, here to Israel. and How much more do these promises apply to us? as we walk faithfully with Him. Verses 25 and 26, the last two verses I read in, in this particular passage, are exact repetitions of the 23rd chapter, verses 18 and 19. And they reflect here the need to exactly obey God concerning worship. Uh, it's, it's not so much that the individual details here are in and of themselves the overall important thing. They are important. But the overall importance here is that God requires us to worship Him in His way, not in the way we choose. There's a scripture that we often repeat from Peter, which says that the scripture is of no private interpretation. As I see that, what that means is that you and I can't go around interpreting Scripture to fit our own little point of view. Develop our own theology and then make Scripture fit it. Scripture has one interpretation and that's the interpretation that comes from God Himself through the Holy Spirit. And, And that's what really throws up red flags to me, you know, when various groups who call themselves Christians start interpreting Scripture in so many varied ways. Somebody's not listening to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has a truth. I mean, we can receive many truths from the same passage of Scripture, but it's always truth. And it's not going to be divergent or in, 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 in opposition to somebody else's interpretation if both have received it from the Lord. They are compatible interpretations. They're, they're not antagonistic interpretations. And... As, as we look at, at the scripture, God wanted the Israelites to do exactly as he said they were to do. Not because God was putting up a bunch of hoops they had to jump through, because that demonstrated their total commitment to him. Whatever you say, Lord, I will do. Because you are Lord, I am not. And, and this would be demonstrated. They had been prohibited from eating blood. And we've talked about this before. They were prohibited from eating blood because life, the scripture says, life is in the blood. It's the very essence of life. And it is the symbol of cleansing from sin. Don't profane it by something as mundane as eating it. In the original Passover, uh, they were to eat the entire sacrifice that night before their departure from Egypt. If not, they were to burn it. And so this is renewed in the commandment here. They were to bring the first fruits of their crops into the house of the Lord. Why? To acknowledge that the very daily bread came from God Himself. Now, we, we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, give us this day our daily bread. How meaningful is that to us? Because we go home and our pantry is full of food. We know where our daily bread is going to be today and tomorrow and the next day probably. But for many people throughout history, that's not been true. The Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread was, was an actual uh, you know, point of, of concern for many people. It, it reminds me of George Mueller, who ran all those big orphanages in England uh, last century, and how he would establish, I mean, he ended up establishing orphanages for thousands of orphans without ever sending out a letter to all of his supporters saying, I need your support. He only went to one person. <laughs> that was God himself. He says, God, this is our need. And somehow God, I don't know how God did it, you know. <laughs> but God moved on people to provide. And it's just amazing. And, you know, sometimes it makes you wonder <laughs> about ministries that send out, please, we're going to have to shut our doors. We aren't going to curtail our activities if you don't send us some money. You know, you wonder, I know, is God somehow shortened? Is his arm of, of help shortened? i 'm not saying we shouldn't send out letters acknowledging need and requesting prayer. I think that's important we wouldn't even know how to pray for people if that kind of thing wasn't happening we, we you know it 's important to get prayer letters like uh, kathy urban's prayer letter here and and others, especially from our missionaries, because we wouldn't know how to pray and we wouldn't know what needs to pray for but you know these these begging letters from the same uh, parachurch organizations that uh, don't seem to ever be able to quite make it. You wonder where, uh, you know, how much they're on channel with the God who is the provider of all needs. I think George Mueller would be a great example for many, I think, to follow. The prohibition against boiling a kid in its mother's milk is, of course, a bit of an odd one, it might seem to us. But, but I think it's an example, at least, of God's concern about inhumane treatment. That which promotes life, the very milk which would bring that kid, that baby goat, into um, adulthood, would, would bring that kid along, should not be used to destroy it. Animals, God was concerned even then animals be not treated insensitively or cruelly. In verse 27 of this chapter in Exodus, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. And he did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. I think it's clear from this passage that when God rewrote the Decalogue, he did it through the agency of Moses. God himself, with his with his great finger of fire, or however he did it, uh, carved the first decalogue. But now Moses had the job of chipping out the letters, uh, the, the little symbols, the Hebrew words, in the stone, as God dictated. God had already told him, you cut out the tablets, Moses. And Moses had cut out the tablets. And God says, you bring the tablets up the mountain, Moses. And Moses took them up the mountain, as God had commanded. And now God says, you carve the letters, Moses. And so Moses carved the letters that... God dictated. Did it take 40 days and 40 nights for Moses to carve these words in the stone? I don't think so. Me may have been slow, but I don't think he was that slow. What was he doing up there? Well, it's possible. It's possible that while Moses was up there on the top of the mountain, that he also had some papyrus and that he was actually writing some of the Torah at that time. It's possible, as God gave him the visions I mean, how else does Moses understand in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and all of the rest of that beautiful picture in the beginning of Genesis? Where does Moses get it? He gets it in vision from God Almighty. Oh, sure, there probably were some legends and stories and word of mouth counts that had come down, but you know how much you can trust that after a few thousand years. So obviously God had to give him the vision and maybe it was at this time that he had the vision whereby he began to pen the truth of what had actually happened in the beginning. We we don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe not. That's what happened up there. But at least we know what happened up there was that he communed with God. Can you imagine communing with God on top of an isolated place 40 days and 40 nights without food or water? how would you do it? Well, Moses did it, I think, because God sustained him. Forty days and forty nights is nearly six weeks. Some of us have trouble with six hours. I'm hungry again, you know. And, and, that, and that's true. It, it's, it's real. But obviously, it was a miraculous provision by God to sustain Moses through that forty days and forty days. So oh, I, I realize people have gone through fasts at that time, and they usually <coughs> ended up in the hospital or something, and I know Jesus was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, but uh, you know, he, he said later to his disciples that, I, I have bread to eat that ye know not of. There is much more to life than, than bread. But certainly for most of us, without bread and water for 40 days and 40 nights, there won't be much life left at all. But uh, God ministered to Moses, and I don't think that Moses felt that he was up there for six weeks. I think he thought, wow, you know, it probably felt like him six days that he'd been up there communing with God. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of really getting into a time of uh, fervent prayer with the Lord and it just, choo, time is gone. You wonder where, where did that half hour or hour or whatever it was go? It just seemed to pass so quickly. The second portion of verse 27. Well, let me read verse again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. In accordance with these words, the Decalogue, and of course the corollary laws and statements that went with them, I have made the covenant with Israel. That means the covenant was conditional. The covenant was conditional. In accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. God promised to do faithfully all that he had said he would do. As he said he would do it to Abraham, repeated it to Isaac, repeated it to Jacob, and gave it to Moses at the burning bush, gave it to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. As God repeated it over and over again, God said, I will faithfully do all that I have promised to do if Israel lives in obedience to the Decalogue. If Israel lives in obedience to the law, I will faithfully do all that I have said I will do. Now, you and I know from the New Testament that it says no man can keep the law in his flesh. So we might think, well, that put Israel in the place of not being able to have the covenant because they couldn't keep the law. But as God proclaimed the law, and as as God proclaimed the covenant, implicit within it, and, and we've read part of it already, was the whole sacrificial system. When God said, you must be obeyed, obedient to the Decalogue, he was saying, obedient to the Decalogue, and if you fail. You have this means of coming before me and being cleansed of your sin as you carry out the sacrifices and and as you participate in atonement. All of that was together as a package. God was not giving Israel an impossible task to do and then saying, my blessing is going to depend on you doing this impossible task. God was saying, my blessing will be upon you, as you obey the law, and when you fail, you go through the procedure which I have given to you, and you faithfully and, and truly repent of your sin and humbly come before me. I will count it to you as righteousness. Remember what God said to, about uh, Noah. He believed God, and God accredited it to him as righteousness. He said of Abraham, he believed God, and God credited to him as righteousness. God put it unto his account. Believing God. So implicit in all of this is belief in God. We can't obey if we don't believe. We can't receive atonement if we don't believe. So belief was the root to the whole thing. The just shall live by faith, whether they are Israelites 2,000 years ago or we today. Verse 29. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai. And the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near. And he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came, uh, came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what, had, what he had been commanded, The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. This man Moses goes through some pretty wonderful stuff, doesn't he? Amazing, amazing things. And to to realize, though, in spite of all of this, that you and I have a greater privilege than Moses to know God. When Moses was on the mountain for the first 40-day period, and he received the Decalogue carved by the very finger of God. The Israelites during that time were seduced into heresy and idolatry. While Moses was committing with God, his people were down there worshiping a golden calf in all of its sensuality. And when Moses, you remember, came down the mountain, he came down the mountain in holy rage, shattering the stone tablets and delivering a fiery chastisement. I mean, almost like a man possessed, of course, but a man possessed of God, he would destroy the golden calf and, and, and he would read Israel the right act, as we might say today. Well, because of all of that, Israel, although their memory wasn't always really good, at this moment Israel was remembering and now that Moses was back up on the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights, they were very meekly, patiently, obediently waiting out the period of time for Moses. They weren't going after any other gods. They were waiting for Moses because they knew that they dared not test God any further if they wanted to survive either individually or corporately. So the story is very different when Moses comes down the mountain the second time. He's not coming down the mountain with this thing in his head. You better go down, Moses, because your people are chasing after idolatry. They're they're doing the wrong thing. And Moses goes down with all these mixed emotions. What's going on down here, you know? And he meets Joshua and comes down the mountain and sees them and flings the stone tablets down the mountain. This time he comes down the mountain in peace. His heart is filled with the shalom of God. As he comes down the mountain, carrying these two stone tablets which he himself cut out, which he himself carved, the letters at the dictation of God. And as he came down, his his face was glowing, radiating the presence of God. Been there 40 days and 40 nights. But he'd been with God 40 days and 40 nights the first time, but didn't say anything about his face glowing. Well, there was something about his presence with God this time, which just in his whole being with, with God's reality. And I think, of course, God allowed this to happen to impress Israel, to impress the people. God, of course, shielded Moses from the fullness of his glory for reasons that we've already talked about before. But even with that shielding, just having been in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights, he came down the mountain with a face that was eerie, I mean, it was unearthly in its glow. I mean, if you and I were to walk up and walk over and see somebody walking down there, you know, there was this big halo of glow all around them and your face was radiating, you know. We'd think, wow, either they were got too close to, uh, you know, some nuclear accelerator or, or something happened. Nothing we've ever, of course, seen before. It frightened the Israelites and we can understand why. I think they thought, Moses has become a spirit, <laughs> or, or this is an angel that looks like Moses coming down off the mountain. They didn't know what this was. It's only when they heard his voice, they heard his voice, that Aaron stopped in his tracks and turned around and looked and acknowledged that this was Moses. And the other rulers of Israel were told, came back and were willing to listen to Moses. And as the people witnessed, the, the leaders and Aaron there, they're not being vaporized and not dropping over dead, therefore it must be okay. And so they slowly crept back to hear what Moses had to say. You know, in modern days, you go to, um, to teaching, you, you go to classes on how to teach Sunday school or, or in public schools or whatever. They talk to you a lot about visual aids, right? Visual aids. Visual aids are important. Well, I think Moses used a visual aid here. Not just his glowing face, but I think he held up the Ten Commandments. I think before the people he said, this is what God is saying. And I as your leader, and I as the prophet of God, command you to obey these words. I mean, Moses had authority. His face was radiating the presence of God. The people had been well chastised. And so they had a heart to hear. And as Moses held up these Ten Commandments before all the people to see, carved in stone what they couldn't have seen before because he had shattered them at the base of the mountain before they had ever had a chance to see them, he held them up and said, this is what God is saying to us. This is what we must do. And he commanded them to obey. Well, I think the people had a heart of fear, a fear, a, a right fear, a fear of God. And The scripture tells us in Proverbs several times that the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, you don't even have the beginning of wisdom. Well, you know where that puts worldly wisdom today? In a cocked hat. And so, as Moses came down with these words, glowing face, the decalogue, the whole thing here, they had a mind to listen and a heart to assent. Yes, we will do what God has said. And I think they sincerely meant it. I'm sure you and I have all had the opportunity to pray a prayer to God, and we sincerely meant it. But a week later, we violated what we made, you know, promise to God in that prayer. Well, Moses didn't even know his face glowed. It's pretty hard to see your face, isn't it? (laughs) It's pretty hard to see. I know some of us have noses big enough that we can actually see it, you know hey, that's glowing. (laughs) I I know. I I think Moses had more things on his mind than to look at his nose if he even could have seen it. And uh, so he didn't even know his his face was glowing until they told him. And so he developed a habit then of wearing a veil over his face when he spoke to the people so they wouldn't be frightened. So they would listen to him instead of look at him and, you know, starry-eyed or wide-eyed and wonder what kind of an unearthly being is this. Now, I think it is also obvious in this passage that Moses put on this veil at first so that the Israelites would not be distracted, not be frightened, not think that something was queer here, but they would listen to the voice of Moses as he instructed them concerning the will of God. And I think this carried on for a significant period of time. But, as you know from your reading of the New Testament the glow will fade and as the glow faded Moses continued to wear the veil only now not to protect them from the glow but to keep them from knowing that the glow had faded let me read that from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul is speaking here concerning apostolic ministry And he says in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, then over in verse 13, not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading. Now, why would Moses do that? We have to remember Moses was human. In spite of all that he had seen and all that God had done, there was in, in Moses that, that little bit of fear that maybe if they saw the glow fading, they would not listen to him as intently anymore anymore they would not respect him as highly anymore, that they would not be as willing to obey anymore. And so to maintain his position, his authority, his, his identification with Yahweh himself, he continues to hold keep the veil over his face. Now, we don't know how long he did that afterwards. You know, after a while, it would be a nuisance, I would think. But uh, you know, apparently for quite a while, he continued to keep the veil over his, his face. I doubt he did it for 39 more years, but, you know, for a while anyway. Chapters 35 through 40 of Exodus describe for us the actual construction of the tabernacle and its dedication. Basically, these chapters repeat. You'll notice how the scripture does that. It repeats It repeats and repeats. (laughs) I mean, it tells us over and over again. God barely ever says something one time. That's why it's so dangerous to take some little statement someplace in the scripture and ferret that thing out and make that some kind of a cornerstone of a new sect. And people do that over and over again. You know, it's like going to to a a verse in 2 Maccabees which most of us probably haven't used devotionally too much, and using those two verses as the cornerstone for building the entire doctrine of purgatory. Now, for you and for me, we don't even consider 2 Maccabees to be a Bible book. Well, if you belong to the Roman Catholic Church, you do, because those nine apocryphal books are considered to be part and parcel of the actual Old Testament, so whatever's in there can actually be foundation to doctrines too. But but the, um, the Protestant movement rejected those books as being non-biblical. And, and therefore, the foundation of that doctrine, whatever biblical foundation it had, was kicked into a cocked hat right there. Of course, I, I should also um, affirm the fact that much of Roman Catholic doctrine was based on Aristotelian thought. And Aristotelian thought, of course, makes something like purgatory very rational and reasonable. So God is here in this set of passages now saying things he's already said before, but before were his instructions. This is how to do it. Now we have the record of how they did it. And how they did it was according to the directions. Isn't that amazing? So I'm not going to go through the detail of, of these five chapters, but we are going to look at certain parts. And we won't have time to do much of that today, but Ken has brought, interestingly, a couple of diagrams that came out of their Bible, uh, which I'll, I think I'll pass these out in January when we get back because we will not have much time to uh, uh, deal with it today. But it kind of gives pictorial representations of what was actually made and, and the tabernacle and all that was put together. And it's probably kind of good to have that in front of you, as Ken was saying, a picture's worth a thousand words, or that at least was what he was implying uh, this morning. So I really appreciate him going to all the work of making these up and we'll use those in January when we uh, finish up. But I do want to talk about a few of the, a few little passages through this, this section uh, because they're kind of key passages, I think. And we'll probably just get to maybe uh, one of them, uh, or two maybe this morning and then we'll we'll finish up in January. By the way, we're continuing the study of the life of Moses here. But as we move on in the study, of course, we'll be moving primarily to Numbers because Numbers is the next historical book. We will be looking at some of the key passages in Leviticus in, in making the transition. But as we go through Numbers, of course, we'll be bringing other Leviticus and Deuteronomy passages in because they, they fit into the historical context, because we're doing this historically as we look at the life of Moses chronologically. And so we will get through the whole Pentateuch, but not verse by verse through all of the uh, books of the Pentateuch, uh, as we have pretty well done in, uh, for most of Exodus anyway but we'll be bringing some of those other passages in. If you look at the 35th chapter here of Exodus, verse 20, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. And everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram's skin dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. And all the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. And all the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. And the rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for the setting for the ephod and for the breast piece and the spice and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women, whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work, which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. I think it is very, very important to note that this tabernacle and all of its furnishings was built not from conscripted labor, not from tax money but from freely given wealth and skill all of the material needed for the construction of the tabernacle came from the people they had the stuff with them that's amazing when you think about it they got it where in egypt that didn't make it profaned material just because the gold had originally belonged to egyptians didn't mean it was cursed gold because it was dedicated to God's service. And they brought this material willingly. And the scripture says, they gave willingly from hearts stirred. The, the Hebrew literally means lifted up to God. Their hearts were God-oriented. And, and they gave it out of joy, not out of compulsion. You know, as, as the scripture so clearly teaches in the New Testament, you know, God loves a hilarious giver. Laugh yourself silly as you drop your money in the plate, you know. And that doesn't mean laugh so silly because you're putting a dime in, you know. <laughs> they also worked willingly with heart skill, uh, 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 stirred up with skill. God gave them through His Holy Spirit the edge on their own ability. They already knew how to spin, but God gave them that extra ability to spin finer and better material than they had ever spun in their lives before can can you imagine the joy of these people knowing that they were working together in unity in obedience to god there is no more important place for the church to be than in unity doing the will of god instead of bicker 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 bicker, little groups here little groups there bicker 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 get it together in unity and serve god and then the thrill of seeing the skill they had used by God to produce something they didn't even know they could do. I mean, it wasn't just plain old ordinary stuff they were spinning. It was a work of art. I mean, this whole tabernacle was a work of art. I hate some of the pictures I see. Not these. These are good because they're drawings, but there, there are pictures I've seen of what somebody modeled to be uh, an effort or something. I look at this thing. Yuck, I don't think it looked like that. Looks like some four-year-old made this thing. I think it was a thing to behold. I think the whole tabernacle was a thing to behold. Uh, God gave, I mean, God is in this thing. God gave them the skill to do what I don't think I could do in a thousand years. I know I couldn't do in a thousand years. And, And so this whole thing turned out to be a glorious, beautiful structure. Because it was for the service of God. God wants the best not because God is arrogant, but because God knows that if we don't give our best, then we're not only shortchanging him, we're shortchanging ourselves. And our attitude towards him is wrong, wrong. If we don't consider him the almighty God, most important being in this universe, and the one that we are here to serve above all else, setting everything else aside. Jesus said, you can't serve me if you don't hate your brothers and sisters. He didn't mean literally hate them, but in relationship to how much you love God, everybody else is in inferior position. But, of course, at the same time, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it all fits together. God wants the very best, because if we don't give our very best. We're demonstrating lack of true obedience, and concern, and our attitudes are wrong. And so that's what he's receiving from Israel, and and that's why I believe this was an absolutely glorious and beautiful structure, and all the implements were perfect under God's inspiring hand. Well, we better pick this up on January 5th.